Church, may I invite you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis 22, you'll find that on page 16 in the Pew Bible. Uh, I do want to encourage you uh, this, uh, this morning to follow along in, with uh, Scripture that we're going to be looking at there in Genesis chapter 22. I think it'll help you stay engaged, re- continually remind you that uh, what we're considering this morning is the Word of God. I trust you've been blessed already. Amen. Amen. Yeah, praise the Lord. Can we appreciate the choir? You all started out this morning very well behaved, and I understand we're in church and some of us have ties on and all the rest, but it's okay to be a little rowdy, okay? So this is a day of celebration and joy, and I trust the celebration will continue here in God's Word. Uh, Thank you, Jim. All right. Uh, if, if you're visiting with us this morning, Hamilton Baptist Church, we've been going through the book of Genesis, and so the next passage in our study is just here in Genesis chapter 22, and you might think, well, this is a strange passage to uh, be preaching on Easter Sunday, and in many ways, you're right, it is, it is a little bit strange, um, but if you'll just bear, bear with us, I think when we get to the end, we're going to see wonderful implications as to what Christ accomplished on Calvary and in the empty tomb. And so here we are in Genesis chapter 22, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the word of God. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am I. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son, Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here am I, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb. For a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For, I know that you f- for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. 
So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Our Father, we're thankful for your word, and now we we ask that that you would speak to us. We echo the words of young Samuel long ago, speak, Lord, your servants are listening. That's what we want to hear from the living God today, through his word. And so you come and help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it goes without saying that it is, of course, a beautiful day, isn't it? This is a uh, beautiful time of the year. I don't know if you've gotten into the garden yet, but uh, it's a great joy to be out and get the hands dirty, and the flowers are, are blooming, and the bees are buzzing, and and the birds are singing, of course, and the, the kids are at the ba- back at the baseball field. Uh, we have uh, four kids who are playing either uh, baseball or softball. Uh, none of my kids play soccer because soccer is dumb. And, uh, and so, so we're all, we're all playing, playing baseball together. And, and, of course, it's hard. any parent has this experience, don't you? You go out and you just watch your children and... Uh, and you, it's, it's hard to imagine how fast they're growing up, isn't it? Um, and we all experience that. It, it, I, I blinked, and it was just like they were just being born just the other day. We're blessed to have eight children. Uh, seven of them um, we created, and one was uh, a foster daughter of ours. And so we have eight kiddos in our house, which means my wife's spiritual gift is giving birth to babies. Uh, she is an incredible uh, Woman, when it comes to having babies, she doesn't take pain medicine because she says she wants to feel the sensation of giving birth. I kind of feel like there are some sensations you don't want to feel. But uh, she, nevertheless, that's how she, she turns into, I asked her if I could say all this in case you're wondering, but she does turn, she turns a bit into the Incredible Hulk when she's giving birth. She, the veins start popping out on her forehead, and she grips my hand like she's going to break it. It's all very intimidating. Um, but it is, at the same time, incredible and wonderful. The last child we had, uh, the midwife, I don't think ever got off Facebook. Allegra just told her, we got this under control. We'll let you know if we need anything. And so she just hung, hung out in the corner there on her laptop with her feet up. Uh, another time, Allegra was getting ready to push, and when Allegra starts pushing, uh, the baby comes quickly. I told the midwife, you have about 90 seconds before we have a baby, and she looked at me like I had no idea what I was talking about, and leisurely getting on her gown and her gloves, and I said, just to let you know, we have a head now, and she freaked out. She actually went to my wife and said, stop, um, which I'm, I've never given birth, but I, don't, I think once you start, you can't stop, from what I understand. My, my favorite birth, I think, of course, they've all been wonderful, but there was a very special birth. My middle son, my middle child, Gideon, um, I actually was able to deliver uh, Gideon. I figured I've, I've watched this enough. All this is is pretty much catching, so I figured I could handle this. And so, you know, I, I told the midwife, you know, I'm ready to come into the game. You know, bring me off the bench, coach, and, and let, me, let me handle this one. And so there I was, and, and Gideon was being born, and his head was purple and shriveled, and I, I tell the midwife, the head's out, and she says, you're doing great, as she's eating potato chips in the corner there, and, uh, and, and there you are, you, you put, it's really easy, you just put one hand under their head, and you put the other hand over their head, you kind of feel a little bit like Tom Brady, and uh, once, you, once you clear the shoulders, uh, the, the baby's born, I mean, and little Gideon is right there. 
uh, in my hands. And I say little, he wasn't little, he was 10 pounds. Um, you know, big head of hair, most babies come out crying. Gideon came out and said, hi, Dad. Um, <laughs> and w- w- what strikes me, um, of course, having a child changes your life, doesn't it? You all experience that. Many of you have, at least. And, and one of the things that catches me off guard every time is the intensity of love that I immediately have for this person whom I've never met before in my life. And, and in that way, it's unlike any other relationship you have, right? Even, even your spouse, you've grown to love them. But for your child, you meet them, and the very second, you feel like you love them with all you have. And so when our children are born, I, 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 I'm the first to hold them, t- typically, and I introduce myself, hi, I'm your dad. Um, we sh- I share some scripture with them, and then we pray. And uh, I, I, my prayer usually goes like, a Father, you're a father, and I'm a father. And you have a son, and I have a son. And I want, above all things, to be a father to my son, like you're a father to me. Will you help me? And then we commit the child to God, and, and we pray God's blessings on the child. And the whole time, the child's hands are closed. And my hands are folded, eyes are closed, right? No, they're usually peeing on my foot during this whole little ceremony. <laughs> I want to talk to you today about a, a story of a father and a son. It is one of the most famous stories in all of ancient literature. In fact, even non-believers consider this story to be one of the high points of ancient narratives. It is riveting, infuriating, confusing, scary, sad, happy. It's the story of a father and a son. And, and some of you are fathers here, aren't you? And some of you are mothers here. And some of you are sons. And some of you are daughters. In fact, that covers all of us. And my hope is as we consider this story, you'll find your place in there. This just wouldn't be a story about someone else, but you kind of put yourself in this narrative to see what it would be like to actually live through these days of a father and a son. In fact, this is a a very special son. In our study of Genesis, we've discovered that God has been promising this family a son over and over, and they've been longing for this son. He keeps saying for 25 years now, you'll have a son, you'll have a son, you'll have a son. And now Abraham, the daddy, is 100 years old, and his wife Sarah is 90. And finally, they have their son Isaac, truly a miracle child. Their family is now complete, if you will, they delighted to have their son, and it's about Abraham and his son. And I think about my son, and my, my sons are, uh, you know, my, all my children, they're, they're at my side, but in particular my sons, we, we do projects together, we split wood together, we, we, we drink coffee together, we go backpacking together, we, we, you know, we, we play catch together, and, we're, and I think Abraham must have done that with his son. Don't you think he went camping and fishing and, and read to him and prayed with him and, and, and sang with him? He loved his son. And so it's stunning that we read here in verse 2, God speaks to this man saying, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. How could he possibly ask something like that? What what does he mean? How, How can that be? Of course, one answer to that is that God is testing Abraham's faith. And that's true. 
We'll see that in a moment. But I do not think this story is primarily about Abraham and his faith. I think it is instead about Abraham's God. I believe this is a story that tells us that this God provides. He is called later in verse 14, Jehovah Jireh, the God who will provide. When it comes, even as we've heard testified to us from Butch's reading and through the songs that have been sung, when it comes to salvation, he has provided. In fact, provided a substitute for us. And so let's consider the provision of God here in this story really in three acts. Act number one begins with a stunning command you see in verse one. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. You'll hear him say, here am I, three times in this story. Um, That's not Hebrew for hello. Here am I is really, I'm ready to do what you command me to do. And to be honest, it's somewhat amazing to me because every time God shows up, he asked Abraham to do something really, really hard. And you you might think he would be tempted when God says, Abraham, Abraham. He might say, oh no, what is it this time? But instead, he says, here am I. Here, Here I am. Because he trusted God. He trusted God. I would suggest to you that the difference between a joyful life and a miserable life is whether you trust in Jesus or not. We sing sometimes, don't we? Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word. If you are to find a happy Christian, you will find someone, I believe, who has learned to trust in God regardless of what is happening in their life. Clearly, we see that in Abraham. We also see, of course, that God is testing him. You see that there in verse 1, that God plans to test him. He wants to see how much this man truly does trust him. Trials come upon us as a test to our faith. But God is not simply just interested in testing our faith or testing Abraham's faith. I believe he wants to strengthen Abraham's faith. And faith, like a muscle, only grows when it's strained, when it's exercised. So if you want to have greater faith in God, you need to exercise that faith. God will help you sometimes by testing you. Of course, we know it's a test, but Abraham has no idea. He didn't know what was going on, which made God's command even, that, even more excruciating, even more painful, as we've already seen there in verse 2. He said to him, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I shall tell you. Now, if, if we weren't familiar with the stories, many of you are, we, it would, uh, we would be totally unprepared for this command. Because all we've heard, we keep hearing, I'll give you a son, I'll give you a son, I'll give you a son. And now God shows up right after the son is born, at least according to the chronology of the Bible, and he says, now I want you to kill your son. I want you to kill your son. No explanation, no conversation, no justification. Just take Isaac, you know that son that you love so much, and go and offer it. It's stunning to me. I think about, as a dad, what is, what is my first job? Is it not to protect my family, to protect my sons, my daughters? And God says, I want you to take his life. In fact, is, parents, is not the worst fear you have is that one day you might have to bury a child. And some of you have walked that terrible path. But he's not just asking him to bury his son. He's actually asking him to be the one responsible for the death of his son. He says, I want you to kill 
Kill not just a child, but kill your son. And not just your son, kill your only son. And not just kill your only son, but kill your only son through whom all your hopes and all the affections have been centered on. And I think, of course, there lies the test. The question before Abraham is, who are you truly living for? Is it me, God asked, or is it this boy whom I have given you? In fact, notice how he's described. He doesn't say in verse 2, take Isaac and offer him as a burnt offering. But no, you see, it's kind of laborious, isn't it? He says, take your son, comma, your only son, in case you don't know who that is, Isaac, whom you love, he says. Well, what is God doing? Is God just twisting the knife a little bit? I don't think so. I think he's asking a question. Where is your ultimate love? Is, is God simply a means to bring about the blessings that you live for? In this case, a child. Or is God everything to you? And therein lies the test before him. Well, you see, act number two, a remarkable obedience. Here, I think Abraham outshines us all, as you see in verse three. So Abraham rose early in the morning saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. He decides, I will obey. And so he rises early to follow the Lord. It's A.W. Tozer who wrote, while the stars still shone like sharp white points above the tent where sleeping Isaac lay, and long before the gray dawn had begun to lighten the east, The old saint made up his mind. He would offer his son as God had directed him. It's here in verse 3. We're given quite a a bit of detail, aren't we, of of the preparation. He saddles the donkey. He cuts the wood. He takes two men with him. I find it interesting that Abraham at this point is well over 100 years old, has scores of servants and his beck and call, and yet he's the one who splits the wood. And perhaps he does so in a bit of a daze, in a fog, because you notice the chores are done out of order. He saddles the donkey, and then he goes to split the wood as he stumbles through this terrible obedience. Well, we see them on their way there in verse 4. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. We now know that this has been three days Three, three days and three nights with Isaac, with father and son out there in the wilderness camping. Of course, Isaac knows none of what awaits him. All he knows is that they're on a journey to worship God. So you can imagine, I think, the conversations that they might have had by the campfire. That Isaac might have said to his daddy, Dad, it's, it's so great that we could just get out and be by ourselves and get away from all the chores of camp and you know, we could, you know, just, just you and I and, and a couple servants, and here we are. And, and, and Dad, we're going to this special place to worship God. Man, Dad, isn't God great? Hasn't he just blessed us so richly? Can you imagine Abraham, three days of conversations like that? Abraham must have looked at his son and continually thought, or at least repeatedly, can I do this? Should I turn back? In fact, by, by three days, I'm pretty sure I would have talked myself out of it. In fact, I probably wouldn't have begun the whole journey to begin with. But three days later, they still march forth in obedience. This is where we see true faith, isn't it? Faith sometimes sprouts up. 
But faith is not truly seen in an initial response. Faith is not truly seen in a, in, a, in a head bowed or a hand raised or someone walking the aisle. Or to be honest, really someone even entering the baptismal waters. Faith is seen, is it not, in its perseverance three days later or three months later or 30 years later. And this we see him pushing on. How many start out well? How many start out with devotion and commitment and all sorts of resolutions about the God to whom they swear their allegiance only by day three, if you will, to be nowhere to be found? Well, not so for Abraham. In fact, he finally comes to the foot of the mountain that they will climb, and Abraham leaves his servant as father and son begin to summit Mount Moriah. As you note in verse 5, And then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. It seems that Abraham's too, too old to carry the wood up the summit, and so he looks at Isaac, I trust, and said, Son, the wood's too heavy. Will you carry, carry it for me? Isaac must have responded, Sure, Dad, I'd be happy to. So you see in verse 6, And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took the knife in his hand, excuse me, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. Abraham there watching his son carry the wood of his own sacrifice while he holds the implements, the knife and the fire that he will use to sacrifice his son. Imagine the burden of such a client. This is Jay Hurden, a missionary who tells a story of a poor a mining village in Ireland, uh, a story when the company bus was filled with the miners from the village and returning from the mine down the steep road slick with ice on a dark winter evening. To the left of the bus was a mountainous wall, and to the right was a sheer cliff dropping down well over 100 feet. It was a narrow and slippery, dangerous road. As the bus came around a curve ahead, The driver noticed a little boy playing in the middle of the road with his back to the bus. An eerie hush fell over the men as the driver had a second to make his decision. Would he swerve off the cliff, perhaps killing a busload of dads from this village? Or would he hit the brakes, which would take the bus right over the boy? Herdon writes, the bus stopped a few hundred feet beyond the crippled form of the boy. The driver of the bus, being the first off, ran back and picked up the lifeless body of his own son. There he buried his head in his chest and wept. And I can only think that a story as heartbreaking as that is just a glimpse of what Abraham must have felt as he climbed that mountain knowing that God had commanded him, if you will, to run over his son. And so they hike in silence until that silence is finally broken. As it occurs to Isaac, they forgot something, you know, in verse 7. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, and he said, here am I, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? This is the only occasion, by the way, in the Bible where there will be a conversation between Abraham and Isaac. We clearly see that Isaac had no idea what awaits him, nor would he be. I mean, his life has just been full of blessing and joy and love. But what he does know is that they need a lamb. 
He says, we got everything, Dad, but the lamb. Where's the lamb? The answer, of course, has gone down in history. According to verse 8, Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both together. God will provide, he says. God will take care of it. He, he clearly is unsure how God will, but, but it, this is the insight that we're given. What was Abraham thinking over these last three days? What, what is carrying him forward? It is remembering the promises of God to provide. Certainly, he, he must have thought about that wonderful event in Genesis 15 under that night sky as God enters into a covenant with him. Right? Certainly, he must have thought of all the promises in which God has given him. And I, I imagine for three days in silent prayer, Abraham on this journey is saying to God, You've promised. You have promised. You have to provide. One pastor asked, What drove Abraham up that mountain? Was it the strength of his character? Was it, was it the, the power of his will? Did he go up the mountain talking to himself? You can do this, Abraham. You can do this. No. What drove him forward was his belief that God is faithful. That God will provide. He doesn't know how. He doesn't know in what way. He doesn't know in what manner. But God will provide. I tell you, only, only the, this belief, only, the only thing that will drive you forward in troubling times is not your willpower or the strength of your character. It is the conviction that God is faithful to the promises he has given us. It is not, I can do this. But it is God will provide. So finally, they make the summon, as you see in verse 9. When they came to the place on which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. How did that happen? I mean, what, what do you think happened? I mean, the old man sat on the boy's chest. He put him in a headlock. Wrestle him up there? It's unlikely. Most scholars believe Isaac at this time is somewhere between the age of 15 and 37. Abraham is well over 100 years old. Let's just say he's a, a teenager. Let's say he's 15. I'm, 40 years, I'm in my 40s. I wish I was 40. I'm in my 40s. I consider myself in fairly good shape. I can't catch my sons. They're like gazelles. They're just dart, you know, left and right. right? I, I don't think... Abraham could, the 115-year-old Abraham could run down his teenage son. He probably wouldn't need to because it's very clear that Isaac is now stronger than his dad for it's Isaac who carries the wood. So how did he get him up on the altar? Well, the only option is that Isaac went willingly. Submissively, he let his father bind him and place him upon this wooden altar. Therefore, there must have come to a point where Abraham looked at Isaac and he looked at his son and said, Son, you're the sacrifice. And he must have gone on to explain the mission and the call of God and the promises of God. And I trust with tears and hugs and kisses. And Isaac has, of course, his whole life heard his daddy talk about God and heard, seen his daddy trust God and seen his daddy obey God. And though undoubtedly uh, terrified, he decides, Isaac does, I will trust in God too. My dad is a man of God. My dad loves God, seeks God, trusts God, and so will I. And so he lays down willingly as Abraham raises the sacrificial knife, as you see in verse 10. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife. 
to slaughter his son. Perhaps the father and son weeping look into each other's eyes one last time. Perhaps Abraham offers one last prayer and says with the knife held high, I love you, my son. How is he able to do such a thing? I can only think it's because of his faith. Of course, God would never ask another person to do such a terrible act. But please understand, for everyone, faith requires sacrifice. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, perhaps you've met with Christians and they told you, hey, you should become a Christian. It might help your marriage. It might give you joy in your life. It might give you a purpose to live. I think all that's true, but please understand that's just half the story. Along with the blessings of being a follower of God comes sacrifice. Jesus has said, my followers carry their crosses. My followers are living sacrifices. My followers die to themselves, their own preferences. My followers are, are ready to rearrange their life if I call. See, the Christian is yielded to God. The Christian says to God, whatever you want, wherever you call, I will go, I will do, I will obey. The Christian submits their life to God. This faith transforms life. It leads to radical obedience. And this is what God is testing in Abraham. But please understand that this is more than a simple test of faith. This is more than a test of faith. Notice that God did not tell Abraham to take Isaac there in the middle of the camp and, and, and kill him. He did not tell Abraham, okay, I want you to go in the tent and kill your boy. He's not telling Abraham to murder Isaac. The instructions are clear. Take him to the mountain and sacrifice him as a burnt offering. Now why? Why all those instructions? Well, God, if you know anything about the Bible, God has repeatedly said, the firstborn belong to me. The firstborn cattle are mine. The firstborn sheep are mine. The firstborn children are mine. And so we read a little farther in the Bible. We get to the 10th plague in the book of Exodus. And God demands the life of the firstborn among each Egyptian household. And not just the Egyptians, but the Jews too, if they would not uh, have a lamb slain in their place. So why is God constantly demanding the firstborn? Well, it is because of the family's sin. There's a debt of sin. And because of sin, the firstborn's life is demanded. You say, well, why the firstborn? Well, in these cultures, there was this law of primogeniture. And if you read the Bible, and this is not just the Jewish culture, it's every single ancient culture, that the firstborn receives the, the, the bulk of the inheritance. Right? You, you notice that in the Bible. The firstborn always gets the vast majority. So if you have eight kids, you don't divide up your wealth into eight, and then the next generation, they divide it up into to all those pieces. You give the bulk of it to the firstborn, and then the firstborn becomes the benefactor for the entire family. He becomes the patriarch. The firstborn represents the family. So when God says the firstborn's life belongs to me, it's forfeit, he is saying in very clear terms to that culture, your family owes me a debt, a debt of sin. That's why every firstborn male in the Bible has to be redeemed. Even Jesus, the Redeemer, was redeemed. Read it in Luke 2, that they had to sacrifice an animal in place of their son, in order to redeem their son. So when God tells, God tells Abraham to sacrifice 
Isaac. He's saying, you have a debt of sin you have to pay. So in other words, if God, God would have told Abraham, I want you to go kill that servant over there, Abraham would have never done it. He says, go, go, go kill Sarah. He would never have done that. That would be murder. But when God demands the life of the firstborn as a burnt offering, Abraham understands that God is calling in the debt. Now here's the problem. That there is a debt to God, sin, but it contradicts the promises of God. That is, the debt must be paid, but God has also promised through Isaac the entire world will be saved. In other words, God is holy, therefore sacrifice Isaac, and God is gracious. Therefore, I plan to save all the world through a descendant from Isaac. And so Abraham must have been thinking, how can God deal with sin and still graciously fulfill his promise of salvation? How can a holy God be merciful? Or to use the New Testament language, how can God be both just and justifier? The answer is in Act 3, provision. God's gracious provision. You note now that Isaac is bound. The knife-wielding hand is held up high. He is ready, as verse 10 says, to slaughter his son. Then we read in verse 11 these very welcomed words. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, And he said, here am I. We've seen the angel of the Lord many times now, haven't we, Hamilton Baptist Church? Who's the angel of the Lord? It's Jesus. Jesus, once again, comes to the rescue, and Jesus calls out, and he says, don't hurt that boy. Verse 12. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son your only son from me. The test was passed. The conclusion is now I know you fear God. Fear, when you read fear God in the Old Testament, that's Old Testament language to say, now I know you're committed to God. Now I know we would say in the New Testament, you trust God, you love God above all things. And so he says, now I understand. You love me. You love me above everything. Now the question you have, this is the question that came up last night in our family devotion. Doesn't God already know? Does he know Abraham's heart? Of course he does. But God is putting him through the fire just not to reveal his love, but to refine it. This is a journey in which God is purifying Abraham's commitment to him. And so there are times, I don't know if you've experienced this, there are times that it feels like God is killing you. But in those times, he is transforming you. He is strengthening you. And so so God says, okay, I understand. Your faith is purified. Your love for me is purified. And then provision is made in verse 13. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. Right? So provision is made. I wonder what they must have said to each other when he's untying Isaac. Maybe like, let's never do that again. Uh, I I don't know, maybe there was just silence, right? But I I think there was probably never a more joyful sacrifice as Abraham and and, and Isaac, father and son, slaughter the ram in the the place of the son. 
And it's there based upon all this that Abraham gives us the theological principle that this whole passage is driving us to in verse 14. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. So what did the Lord provide? Well, he provided a ram. Now, here's the question. Why does there need to be a ram? Right? The whole command was, go sacrifice your son. He showed that he was willing to do that. God said, okay, don't lay a hand on him. Abraham passed the test. He was willing to sacrifice his son. Why not just go home? Why why does there need to be a ram? Well, because it's more, more than a test. As we've already seen, the debt of sin still must be paid. And so God provided a substitute a sacrificial ram in place of the son. In fact, do you remember what Abraham said there in verse 8? God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. God will provide the lamb. But it wasn't a lamb. It was a ram. Did Abraham get it wrong? Where's the lamb? Where's the lamb? Well, the lamb's coming. It's just coming much, much later. In fact, notice carefully what Abraham says there again in verse 14. Right? The Lord, what? Has provided? Is that what he said? The Lord has provided? No, he didn't say that. The Lord will provide. And what's the mountain called? On the mountain of the Lord, the Lord has, it has been provided? That's not what the mountain's called. It shall be provided. There is a coming provision to which all this story points us to up on that mountain. In fact, what's the deal with the mountain? Right? Why in verse 2? Go to a mountain, go, uh, to go to Moriah, to the mountains of Moriah and sacrifice him on a mountain. I'll show you. Why not just do it in camp? Why not just walk out half a day out in the wilderness and, 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 and sacrifice him there? What, why the mountains of Moriah? Well, my friends, by the time we get to the New Testament, these mountains are no longer called Moriah. They're, they now have a slang name because of what they look like. In the Aramaic, it's Golgotha. Or in Latin, it's Calvary. You see what Abraham is saying there in verse 14. On Mount, on what mountain? On Mount Calvary, God shall provide. God shall provide a lamb some 2,000 years before he did. In fact, centuries later, was it not the prophet that declares of Jesus Christ, what? Behold, what is it, church? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And like Abraham and like Isaac, the father leads the son, his son Jesus, his only son, the son that he loves, up these very mountains to its top. And like Isaac, upon his back, the Lord carries the wood of his sacrifice, for Scripture tells us he went out bearing his own cross. And like Isaac, once he reached the summit, he also was bound atop that wood, his binding not with cords but nails. And like Isaac, he lied upon the altar willingly out of a love and devotion to his father, for he himself has prayed, not my will, 
but your will be done. There is only one difference. When God's knife wielding hand was raised at Calvary, there was no one to call out, do not harm the boy. There was no ram caught in the thicket. There was no substitute, for he was the substitute. The father raised the knife high above, and he brought it down into his son for you and for I. What was it that Jesus taught? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That which God stopped Abraham from doing, God actually did. He gave him. And in doing so, finally, the lamb has been provided. Substitution has been made for all who trust in Jesus. And now we look at all that. We stare upon Calvary in the summit, and there the lamb upon the cross. And what is it that we say? Has God not only already filled our mouths? Now I know. Now I know that you love me, for you have not withheld your son, your only son, for me. You see, in Christ's substitute, we have found salvation. So many are trying to earn their salvation. So many are trying to be good enough to have eternal life. But the scripture doesn't say, on the mountain of the Lord, you will obey. It, it says, on the, mountain of the Lord, the, uh, on the mountain of God, the Lord will provide. He provides for us in Jesus. In fact, Isaac not only points us to Jesus, but Isaac points us to us because we all deserve to be on that altar, do we not? We all deserve to have that debt of sin taken from us with a knife raised upon us. And we have, if you will, all been in that place only to hear God in salvation say to us, I will not harm that boy because of what Jesus has done. And we, like Isaac, are therefore unbound and set free and Jesus like the ram in the place of Isaac dies in our stead I hope you know that story I hope you believe it in fact it is based upon the very authority of the word of God that I would invite every man and woman every boy and girl in this room has never trusted in Jesus to yield your life to him that you might even pray in the quietness of your own heart God, I know you have provided for me in Jesus. He is my substitute. He has died in my place. And I now ask you to forgive my sin as I yield my life in submission to King Jesus. Well, is that the end of the story? No, it's Easter, isn't it? We don't end with a dead son hanging upon an altar on the summit of Calvary. In fact, you notice what Abraham said there in verse 5 to his servants as they climbed the mountain? Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there, and I and the boy will worship, and I and the boy will what? Come again to you. We're going up, and we're coming down. What? How is that possible? You're going to sacrifice your son. 
And somehow he intends that, yes, I'm going to sacrifice my son. His body is going to be consumed upon that altar, that burnt offering. And yet at the same time, I am also convinced that we will return together. We shall come down this mountain together. How? What is he expecting? Well, we know from the book of Hebrews that he's expecting God to raise Isaac from the dead. It is Hebrews 11 that says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, for he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. He thought, even if I have to kill the boy, God can bring him back. God will give life to his remains. And therefore, Isaac's sacrifice is not simply a foreshadow of the crucifixion of our Lord, but of his resurrection as well. Right? Was it not Jesus who said, I'm going to die, and I will see you three days later in Galilee? Right? He, he too said, I, I'm going up the mountain, and I'll come down the mountain, and we'll be together again. For Isaac was set free from the cords that bound him centuries later. Jesus himself was set free from the cords of death and rose from the grave. In fact, the scripture says God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it is impossible for death to keep its hold on him. So I tell you this morning, happy Easter. The Lord has provided. He has given us a substitute. The work of salvation is finished. The debt of sin has been paid. The condemnation of a holy God has been set aside. And mercy and grace and forgiveness and acceptance now abound through faith in the crucified and risen Lord. He rose in victory. As the angel has said, he is not here. He is alive. And so we all today and forevermore shall stand before Jesus as King and Lord and Savior forever and ever. Our Father, we are full of delight in the work of Jesus. A work that was so powerfully foretold Thousands of years before he ever set foot upon this earth. We thank you that a sacrifice has been made in our place. We thank you that he has now risen from the dead, the firstborn among the resurrected. And I pray, Father, that just like Abraham's faith was strengthened, so ours would be as well. That perhaps for some here you would renew their commitment and devotion to you. Maybe they have faltered along the way after initially such a good start. Will you not help them up and dust them off? Take their hand and lead them forward. We pray for those here who have yet to trust in Jesus. I wonder what is it that they hope in for eternal life, if not a substitute, if not a risen Lord. Will you even now put faith in their heart that they might yield themselves to King Jesus, we pray. Amen.